good to see everyone here tonight. We're happy for your presence. Thankful that God has brought us together. Continue to worship Him. Continue this gospel meeting. I want to thank you for all the words of encouragement, all the kindness, all the love, all the, all the hospitality that's been shown to me and my family this week. Um, we really enjoyed being here, spending time with you, not only here in the assembly, but also away from the assembly. Tonight, I hope and I trust that as we study the scriptures, that we can find things in God's Word that will be helpful to us, things that we can take deep into our heart, deep into our mind, things that will help us to grow in our faith and our devotion to God. title of my lesson tonight is, How Can I Know for Sure? I want to start our lesson in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 6. We're going to read verses 36 to 40. What we read here in Judges 6 is what happened after an angel appears unto Gideon and brings him news that God was going to use him to defeat the Midianites. The Bible says in Judges 6 and 36, And Gideon said unto God, If thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said, behold, I will put a fleece of wool in the floor. And if the dew be on the... And if the dew be on the fleece only, and it be dry upon all the earth beside, then shall I know that thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said. And it was so, for he rose up early on the morrow, and thrust the fleece together, and wringed the dew out of the fleece a bowl full of water. And Gideon said unto God, Let not thine anger be hot against me. And I will speak but this once. Let me prove, I pray thee, but this once with the fleece. Let it now be dry only upon the fleece, and upon all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, for it was dry upon the fleece only, and there was dew on all the ground. Now, Gideon had his doubts, didn't he? When God sent an angel to reveal to him that he was going to use him to defeat the Midianites. Gideon had his doubts. So he asked for a sign from God. He said, God, I'm going to put this fleece out on the ground, and when I wake up in the morning, I want the fleece to be wet with dew, but I want the ground around it to be completely dry. And you know, God was happy to provide that very sign that very night. But you know, that wasn't enough for Gideon, was it? Gideon wanted to be certain about this. So he asked for a second sign. He says, Lord, just do this one, one more thing for me. Just, just one more time. Don't be angry with me, Lord. But just do this one more thing for me. I'm going to put the same fleece out on the ground, and when I wake up in the morning, I want this time the fleece to be dry, and I want the ground all around it to be wet with dew. And only after God provided that second sign for Gideon was he certain that God was going to use him to defeat the Midianites. You know, Gideon's behavior in this story tells us a lot about our own human nature. We as human beings strive to reach a certain level of certainty in every decision that we make. For example, before I get in my car and drive four hours down the highway to visit a friend, I want to be pretty certain that they're going to be home when I arrive to see them. Before I go buy a new sofa or a new appliance, I want to be pretty certain that that new sofa or new appliance is going to fit through my front door. 
before I go to replace a burnout electrical socket there in my garage, I want to be pretty certain that I've cut the power to that receptacle. I want to be pretty certain of that before I grab those wires. What do we do in situations like these? We call ahead, don't we? And ask the friend and make sure they'll be there. We, we call ahead and make sure we're certain they'll be there for a visit. We measure the sofa and we measure our door frame maybe even twice to make sure that that sofa will fit through the front door. We might go and double check that breaker in the breaker box to make sure we've disconnected the power to that receptacle. Why do we do those things? Because we're just like Gideon. We're just like Gideon. We like certainty. Certainty gives us assurance. Certainty makes us confident. It gives us comfort and it gives us peace when we can know things and when we can know them for sure. Now, if we put such a high premium on certainty when it comes to making earthly decisions like this, how much more valuable do you think certainty ought to be when it comes to making decisions that have eternal consequences? For example, when it comes to questions like this, before I die, am I certain that I've been saved from my sins? Before I stand in judgment, before the all-powerful, almighty creator of this universe, am I certain that he's going to let me into heaven? You know, questions like these are far more important than any four-hour road trip or any appliance or sofa or any, you know, Mr. Fix-It job we might do in our garage. These are questions that we want. Rather, I would say these are questions that we need to know that we have 100% certainty. Not 90% certain. The stakes are too high for that. Not even 99% certain. Because I'm here to tell you that 1% of, of uncertainty, 1% of doubt is not worth risking your soul and your eternal salvation over. We need to be 100% certain about knowing whether or not we have salvation and knowing whether or not we stand in a right relationship with God. We need to know for sure person says, well, Brother James, is it even really possible for us to know for sure? I mean, you know, I know what the Bible says, and I know what God wants me to do, and I try to do it, but is it even really possible for me to be 100% sure about my salvation? I believe the Bible gives us a clear answer to that question in 1 John chapter 5. 1 John 5, verse 11, the Bible says, This is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. John says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. The Apostle John seemed to believe that it was possible for us to know for sure whether or not we had eternal life. He said, I'm writing these things to you so you may know that you have eternal life. God inspired John to write these things to first century Christians so that they could know that they had eternal life. 
In John chapter 20, this is John's gospel toward the end of it. John 20 verse 30. John says, Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Many things that Jesus did just weren't able to be recorded by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But John says in verse 31, But these are written, why? That you might believe. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. John wanted people to read his gospel, read the things he wrote about Christ so that they would believe and that so that they would have life through his name. The Bible teaches us that, yes, it is possible for us to know for sure whether or not we've been saved from sin. It is possible for us to know for sure whether or not we have eternal life. The Scriptures teach that we can know for sure what our eternal destination is. But I would go so far as to say, you know, not only is it possible for us to know, God wants you to know for sure. I don't believe we serve a God that wants us living in constant doubt about whether or not we've truly been saved, whether or not we have eternal life, whether or not He's going to be faithful to reward us as He's promised in His Word. I don't believe God wants us going through life just, you know, well, maybe I am, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. I'm just going to cross my fingers and just hope that I believe God wants us to know for sure whether or not we have salvation and whether or not we've been saved from our sins. And I believe that we can know for sure. How do we know for sure? How can I know for sure that I've been saved from sin? You know, a lot of people today would answer that question by saying, Well, Brother James, I know for sure because I heard. Because I heard heard because I heard somebody say that you know I had nothing to fear in the end God was going to save everybody that's a very popular idea today the the doctrine of universalism that you know do what you want live how you want don't worry about it in the end God's just going to save everybody no one's going to go to hell there is no hell and some people say well I, I know I'm okay because you know I, I heard somebody say everyone's going to make it to heaven some say, I know for sure because I heard a preacher on TV say that all I have to do is believe. If I'll just believe, I'll be saved. I know for sure because I heard a pastor say that all I have to do is, is pray a prayer or ask the Lord into my heart and, and I would be saved. Many people today rest their salvation on these many different things that they have heard from many different individuals. But listen, should we just blindly believe everything we hear a preacher, a pastor, or a, or a minister teach us or tell us? Should we just blindly believe it? If a guy in a three-piece suit stands up behind a podium like this and says it, I mean, is it that good enough? No. Oh. You know, Jesus warned us. He told us in Matthew 7, 15, beware of false prophets. There are false teachers in the world today. There are people teaching false doctrine about salvation. And Jesus says, beware of them. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. The Bible also says in 1 John 4 and 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets, there's those false teachers again, Many false prophets are gone out into the world. 
2 Peter 2, verse 1, Peter says, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily, secretly, shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Verse 2 says that many, not just a few, not just a few, many shall follow their pernicious, or pernicious means destructive, Many will follow their destructive ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Many preachers today have been deceived into first believing and then teaching things about salvation which just are not true. And many, not just a few, but many are blindly following these false teachers and their false doctrines about salvation. Never blindly follow any man's teaching. I don't care who it is. You get into the Word of God, and you see for yourself whether or not what you're being taught is the truth. We've got to do it. Uh, beware of what Jesus said here in Matthew 15, verse 14. Jesus said, let them alone. He's talking about the scribes and the Pharisees. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, Jesus said both. Both the blind leader and the blind follower, both shall fall into the ditch. It takes more than just blindly following and believing what we've been told or what we've heard to know for sure that we've been saved from sin. You know, a lot of people today would say, well, Brother James, I know for sure I have salvation because I feel or because I felt. People today will say, I know for sure I'm saved because when I asked Jesus into my heart, I felt a feeling of joy and peace that just flooded my soul. And when I felt that feeling, I knew I was saved. I know for sure because when I prayed the sinner's prayer, I just felt God wash away all of my sins. Some would say, you know, I know for sure I'm saved because I felt as if I had a religious experience. And, and when I did, I felt it deep down in my heart, and I knew that I was saved. Many people today rest the certainty of their salvations on their own subjective feelings, okay? But let me ask you a question tonight, friend. How far can we trust our feelings? Can we solely rely upon our feelings for things such as, as uh, important as this, we really can't because, you know, feelings can oftentimes lead us astray, can't they? Feelings are oftentimes not a reliable source by which we can make good decisions, okay? Let me show you an example of this. This is an example. When we stop and consider the feelings of Father Jacob in Genesis chapter 37, remember what happened in Genesis chapter 37? Jacob had 12 sons, and the, other, the 11 sons hated their brother Joseph, right? They were jealous of him, they did not like him. So the 11 sons turned against their brother Joseph, and they threw him down into a pit. They held him there for a while, and then they sold him into slavery into Egypt, okay? They devised a plot by which they would take Joseph's coat of many colors that his family had made him, and they... Uh, they put animal blood on it and took it back to Father Jacob. You remember this story? They took that coat of many colors and put the animal blood on it and, and said, we, we don't know what happened to, 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 to Joseph. All we'd found is this. And when Jacob took 
that cloth up into his arms and he saw the coat and he saw the blood. What was Jacob's immediate reaction? Jacob grieved and cried and mourned over the death of Joseph. He said, a wild animal has certainly devoured him. And Jacob mourned the loss of Joseph, his son, for many, many, many years. But in reality, Joseph was not dead, was he? Joseph was alive. Joseph was in Egypt. In fact, after a period of time, Joseph came to do pretty well for himself in the land of Egypt. He became second in charge over all the kingdom. And the point I want to try to make here from Genesis chapter 37 is this. The information that was presented to, to a Father Jacob caused his emotional reaction or response. And that's how our feelings and our emotions work. Our feelings and our emotions always react to the information that we are presented with. Now that information could be 100% accurate or it could be 100% inaccurate and be completely wrong. But you know, our feelings really don't care whether or not what we've, the information that we've been presented with is right or wrong. Our, our feelings react according to what we perceive to be true. And we see that in the story of Jacob. His feelings were very, very real to him. Those tears were real. Those feelings of loss and mourning were real to him. They were simply a response to the information that was presented to him. But the information was false, wasn't it? Jacob or Joseph wasn't dead. He was alive. Father Jacob mourned all those years and cried all those tears over a son that was actually alive. Okay? And, and, and the takeaway point is this. Many people today are like Jacob, okay? They have been taught that they will feel certain feelings and certain emotions when they do certain things for God, like pray a prayer or ask Jesus into their heart. They feel those emotions that they've been taught to feel when they do the things they've been taught to do to be saved in the sight of God. When in, in actuality, listen, the things they've been taught to do for salvation are not scriptural, are not right. Feelings don't tell us whether or not the information we're presented with is true or false. Our feelings are always a response to what we perceive to be 100% true, even when our perception is 100% wrong. And we've got to keep this in mind. We've got to understand this. Another, another example of this that we can look at would be the story of the Apostle Paul. Once you think about the life of the Apostle Paul and think about the life he lived before he became a Christian. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul said, I thank Jesus Christ our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before, this is what Paul used to be, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious. He says, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Now listen, unlike Jacob who felt guilt and sorrow for the loss of his son Joseph, who was actually alive, Saul felt 100% justified in the sight of God. And he felt good about going around and arresting and persecuting innocent Christians. That made him feel good. He had good feelings. 
All the while, he was doing terrible, terrible things. Look at what Paul said in Acts 23 and 1. The Bible says, And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Paul had lived in all good conscience before God. Even as he went around and found Christians and drug them out of their homes and had them tried and persecuted and even some of them stoned to death. Paul did it with a good conscience. How could a person feel good about doing such terrible things? It all goes back to the fact that Paul was operating on bad information. Father Jacob was presented with bad information. Paul was operating on bad information. He didn't believe Jesus was uh, God's son. He didn't believe Jesus was the, uh, the, the Savior. He believed Jesus was a false prophet. His disciples were all blasphemers. And their movement, this Christian movement, had to be stopped. And so Paul set about to do just that and all to the glory of God. And it made him feel good to go around and do terrible, terrible things. You see why we can't trust our feelings and let them lead the way in knowing for certain whether or not we're saved? If we believe false information about salvation, our feelings will lead us astray and give us a false sense of security. We cannot trust our feelings to know for sure whether or not we've been saved. How can we know for sure that we've been saved? We can't rest it on just things that we've heard. We can't rest it on things that we've felt. I'm here to tell you tonight the way that you can know for sure that you've been saved is if... You know in your heart of hearts you've trusted God. And you know that you've obeyed His Word. This is how we know for sure. It's not a feeling. It's not something, you know, you heard. You can know by trusting God. And you can know by obeying His Word. This is the only way to know for sure. Put your trust in God, not in yourself, not in your feelings, not in some preacher or priest. Look into the Word of God. Look into what the Bible teaches us about the proper way to be saved and obey that Word. Humbly submit ourselves to God and to His plan of salvation. That's how we know for sure that we have salvation. The New Testament teaches us there are several things we must do to be saved. We must believe in Christ. We must believe He came, He died, He was buried and rose from the dead. And He did that to pay a penalty that you and I could never pay. He lived a life that you and I could never live. He died the death that he really shouldn't have had to die. But he did it for you and he did it for me. We've got to believe those things. John 3.16 says we've got to believe in the only begotten Son of God. The Bible teaches we've got to repent of our sin. The fact that Jesus died of, of the sins that we commit ought to motivate us and move us to repent, to turn away. From the wicked life of sin, Jesus taught in Luke 13 and 3 that if we don't repent, we'll perish. We need to confess our faith in Christ. It's not hard to confess faith when you've got it in your heart. Romans 10, 9 to 10, For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It's only natural that a 
Sincere belief in the heart will come forth from the mouth in the form of a confession. And the Bible teaches that we must be baptized. We must receive a scriptural baptism. We must be immersed in water for the remission of our sins if we desire to be saved. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time tonight about talking about belief or repentance or confession because most people understand and see the need for these things in the plan or the process of their salvation. But I, I do want to take a few moments to talk about, number four there, the need for baptism. We want to do that because many people today see little or no need uh, for baptism. And that's because of uh, a lot of false doctrine that has been around for many, many years, in fact, hundreds of years, uh, concerning salvation and concerning how we're saved. Many preachers today... Don't preach that baptism is necessary for salvation. We're going to look at the scriptures so you can see for yourself how important baptism is in this plan of salvation. We're going to look at Mark chapter 16, verse 15 and 16. In Mark 16, 15, the Bible says, And he, that's Jesus, said unto them, Go you into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And then in verse 16, Jesus says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not, shall be damned or condemned. Now this is what Jesus said. Very plainly and very clearly, and you can read the words right there out of your own Bible in, in um, Mark 16, 16. He said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Now many preachers today will come along and they will teach salvation this way. They will say, He that believeth shall be saved, and then he can get baptized later if he wants to. Okay, You know, that's the doctrine of baptism that is really taught today by a lot of preachers in a lot of different churches. Believe, you'll be saved, and then get baptized if you want. Okay, What it really boils down to is, is this message right here. A lot of the teaching today about baptism is he that believeth and isn't baptized can still be saved. You know, believe, you'll be saved, and then you know, baptism is optional. What it essentially means is... He that believeth and is not baptized shall be saved. Now, I want you to look very carefully at what Jesus preached and compare it very carefully to what many preachers preach today. Do you see the difference? There's a difference in there. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Men today say, He that believeth and is not baptized shall be saved. That one little word, not, makes all the difference, doesn't it? So, who's right? Who was right? Was Christ right when he said what he did? Or are preachers right when they preach this doctrine of baptism today? You know, look, let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Acts 2 and 38. The Bible says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. In this passage, Peter tells all the Jews there in Jerusalem on Pentecost Day, he told these people to be baptized, and if you'll notice there, he told them to do it for the remission of their sins. Now, there's been a lot of controversy, a lot of different discussions about what exactly this phrase, for the remission of sin, means, okay? Now, a lot of preachers and scholars today will claim that if you would study this phrase, for the remission of sins, in the original Greek language from which it was translated into our English King James Bibles, they would try to tell us that what it really means 
is that Peter was telling them to be baptized because their sins had already been forgiven them. You know, I heard, a, I heard and I read a lot of different uh, preachers and scholars say, make statements very much like this. So much so that I decided one day, you know, I'm going to go and try to study that out and see if that's true. And many of the preachers and scholars would appeal to the, the Greek language from which Acts 2.38 comes. They'd say, if you understand it in the Greek, you'd understand that this is really what it means. It's telling them to be baptized because they were already saved. I went to the Greek lexicons. Greek lexicons were books that were written by notable Greek scholars, men who studied the, that, this language their whole life, and give us books to help us understand what those Greek words really mean. And when I went to the lexicons of notable Greek scholars, I'm not a Greek scholar. I'm not. I had to go look at the books of Greek scholars to try to figure this out. And when I did, what I found was the exact opposite of what so many people were saying about what this phrase, for the remission of sins, really means. Joseph Thayer, in his lexicon on page 94, said that for the remission of sins means to obtain the forgiveness of sins. To obtain it, not because it's already been obtained, but to obtain remission of sins. I went to E.W. Bullinger's lexicon in page 295. He says that this phrase, for remission of sins, in the Greek means, in order to have the remission of sins. Listen, in order to have the remission of sins. He told them to be baptized, not because they already had it, but in order to have the remission of their sins. Arton Gingrich's lexicon, page 228. They say that this phrase, for the remission of sins in the Greek, means so that sins might be forgiven. So that sins might be forgiven. Not that they already are, but so that they might be forgiven. These are the reasons why Peter told these Jews to be baptized. In order to obtain forgiveness, in order to have remission, so that sins might be forgiven. I was amazed. Those scholars were saying, if you understood it in the Greek, you'd know that it said, you know, they were saved before baptism. It's not true. Don't let anybody tell you that if you understood this in the Greek, you would know that it teaches that you're saved before baptism because that's not what it teaches when you do your homework and when you actually go to the source and see what these scholars say. To wrap all this up tonight, I want to I want to look at the conversion of, of Paul, conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And I think that we can learn a lot about the things that, that will help us to know for sure whether or not we've been saved from our sin. We just need to look at the conversion of Saul. Saul's conversion is found three different places in the, Bible, in the book of Acts, Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. We're not going to read all those passages. I'm just going to paraphrase some of the things that happened in the process of Saul's conversion. First thing that happened to Saul is Saul had a religious experience. He was on a road to Damascus to go find and arrest Christians, and a bright light shined down from heaven so bright that he dropped to the ground and was blinded. And then he heard the voice of the resurrected Jesus himself say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now Jesus had a very intimate encounter with the resurrected Jesus. He saw the bright light that blinded him, and he heard the voice of Christ himself. I want you to notice, if anybody had a religious experience, it was Saul. Okay? 
Saul says, Lord, what do you want me to do? The, the Lord says, you go into the city of Damascus and it'll be told you what you need to do, okay? The next thing that we read in the process of Saul's conversion, he goes into the city of Damascus and there he fasts and there he prays for three days. This is all that Saul knew to do from his extensive religious training as a Pharisee. He goes into the house of Judas in Damascus and he fasts and he prays for three days. Okay? The Bible goes on to tell us that, you know, there was a, a disciple in Damascus by the name of Ananias. The Lord appears to Ananias and tells Ananias to go to Saul there in the house of Judas to help him receive his sight and to give him a message from God. Now, Ananias had his doubts initially, but the Lord reassured him, go. You go find this Saul and you do what I say. Ananias went to the house of Judas. He comes into the house of Judas. He puts his hands on Saul, who's still blind. He's still blind. He don't know if he's going to see another day of his life. Ananias puts his hands on Saul and says, Saul, receive your sight. And, and Paul says that immediately his sight was restored. It was almost like scales had just fallen off of his eyes. Saul experienced miraculous healing. He was blind. One moment and the next moment he could see. If anyone had experienced miraculous healing... It was certainly Saul. Now, this is the point in which, at Saul's conversion, in which a lot of preachers today would look at this and say, Well, Saul, you know, surely you've been saved from your sins by now. You had a religious experience. A lot of people today feel like they're saved because they had some religious experience. You fasted and prayed for three days. A lot of people today feel like they're saved because they, they prayed, they prayed a prayer. Saul, you, you've even experienced miraculous healing. Some people point to some miraculous healing that they believe they've experienced as a sign of their salvation. People point to these things all the time. And they feel as if they can know for sure that they're saved because they've experienced these different things. But was Paul saved from his sins? If we continue to read the story of Paul, what we're going to find is that, you know, even though he had a religious experience, even though he prayed and fasted, and even though he received miraculous healing, he was not saved. He was still in his sins. Because Ananias goes on to tell him in Acts chapter 22, verse 16, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Saul was still in his sins. Even after everything that had happened to him, he was still in his sins, and he needed to get up and obey God and be baptized so he could have his sins washed away by the blood of Christ. I think this teaches us a lot about how we can know for sure whether or not we've been saved. Okay? We can't rest our salvation on experiences that we perceive that we may have had, feelings that we felt deep down in our heart. We can have all kinds of experiences. We can have all kinds of feelings. At the end of the day, if we haven't trusted God and obeyed His Word, we're still in our sins like Saul was. We're still in our sins like Saul was. Listen. I know it's not easy to learn that things that you are 100% certain about for a long, long time 
were actually 100% wrong all along. That's not easy. I want to tell you something. I've driven four hours to visit a friend and got to their house and they weren't there for the visit. You know, I felt foolish. I should have called ahead. I've bought furniture that I was just sure it was going to fit through my front door. Lo and behold, you get it up there on the porch, it won't go through. I should have measured twice. Felt foolish. I went to replace burnout electrical outlets, receptacles in my garage. I was just sure that I'd flip the breaker and turn the power off. And I go to grab those wires and I got a shock. I felt foolish. I should have double-checked that breaker. I know it's not easy and it's difficult to learn that things that we were just so sure about, so certain about, were actually wrong all along. But listen, this lesson tonight is not about making people feel foolish. It's not about putting people down. It's about reaching out and helping people get right with God. And that's the heart from which I'm giving you these words tonight. You've got an opportunity to get right with God tonight and know for sure. And know for sure whether or not you've been saved from your sin. You can know for sure without a doubt that you're on the right track. And it comes through trusting God. And it comes through obeying the teachings of His Word. You need to believe the gospel. You need to repent of your sins. You need to confess Christ. And you need to be baptized tonight. Only then can you know for sure that you've obeyed the Scriptures and you've done the things God has asked you to do to be saved. Have you truly been saved from your sins tonight? That's the question I leave you with. Tonight, if you're not sure, or if you know for a fact that you haven't obeyed the Scriptures and the gospel plan of salvation, you can leave here tonight with all the assurance, all the confidence, all the comfort, all the peace of mind that God has to offer. If you're not sure, let's be sure about it tonight. You need to obey the gospel. You need to do what's right in the sight of God. And that's why we are here. We're here to help people get right with God. If you need the Lord in any way, you need to obey the gospel. Please don't hesitate. Make it known by coming forward while we stand and while we sing a song to encourage you.